If you've been tracking with us for any length of time, you know that we've been working out of a series in uh, 1 Peter. We are up to chapter 3. And uh, this has been a unique series to work through uh, because it is actually very pertinent to where we are at uh, today. The people in 1 Peter, the Christians, have been, have been exiled. They have been rearranged. They have become believers in Jesus Christ, and the Roman government has found them to be somewhat challenging. The more converts they have to this Christianity that they're not familiar with, the more the Roman government to be, became afraid of them. You always fear what you don't understand. Nero is the emperor at the time, and Nero was one for hating Christians. He actually had garden parties where he would impale Christians and light them on fire so that they would light up his garden parties. Nero was a crazy man. He actually uh, set Rome on fire and blamed the Christians for that as well. Uh, This began 200 years of persecution for Christians in the New Testament church because people didn't know how to take and how to receive, how to understand this new thing called Christianity. By the end of it, We had the Colosseums where they were throwing Christians to lions and they were being torn apart before the gladiators came out and fought. It would be the appetizer to the main event. So we are talking about a group of people that are highly misunderstood and even to the point of being feared. So I was trying to think of a good illustration to start off this morning with and the illustration that I came up with is actually one of my favorite. It's the illustration of the salmon. How many of you are familiar with uh, the life of a salmon? Salmon are a unique species of uh, animal. They actually, yes, they are great to eat, but um, they also are very intriguing because of their lifespan. Salmon are, um, in my opinion, because I'm I'm a bit of a fisherman, salmon are one of my um, favorite fish to explore Uh, because I love to go fly fishing and catch them and release them. Uh, Fishing is my Sabbath. And uh, sometimes I do it and decompress, and I always look forward to to getting to go. But one of the greatest experiences you can have is actually fishing these things in a stream. So they're out in Lake Michigan, but they actually originate in the streams. So you can go to the streams that are connected to Lake Michigan certain times of the year, and you can walk up the streams, and they'll be full of salmon. And the salmon are coming up from this, the, the lake, and they are beginning to spawn. In Lake Michigan, uh, salmon were introduced in the late 1960s. And they were, they were put in as Chinook and Coho salmon. So if you catch salmon in Lake Michigan, those are the two species of salmon that you would have. With the help of conservationists, salmon population has grown And it gradually um, has moved, um, starting in the stream, these salmon moved to the lake. Interestingly enough, they moved down to the lake for a period of about four years, where they grow really, really big. And after four years, four or five years, they head back up the same stream they come from. They head up the same stream, God knows how they find it, but they head up the same stream to the identical place where they were hatched. And the reason they do that is because they... That's where they spawn, and they, let, uh, and they, they give birth to, to the smelt that they, um, um, that they give birth to. 
Now that's interestingly, uh, that's interesting enough. And, and, when you're, and when you're actually standing in the stream, it just freaks you out because you'll actually be standing in the stream and you'll see this big whale swim by you and you're like standing right next to it. Sometimes they bump into you. It's a little freaky. Um, but especially when you're there and you see one and you're trying to cast up to it and then all of a sudden one jumps right behind you because they're just like, it's an amazing experience. Saltwater salmon are just as interesting. Uh, this, this salmon is the sockeye salmon, and you can see this is low rainfall, but these salmon are determined to go back up to the place where they, were, uh, where they came from. Some of these salmon will, will travel 6,000 miles in their lifetime, and they will go as far upstream as 200 miles to get back to the exact same place where they were, uh, where they were birthed. Um, it is an amazing, uh, is amazing journey that these salmon take on, whether it's on the Atlantic side or the Pacific side, sockeyes on the Pacific side. It's an amazing journey that they are constantly going against the pressure of the stream. So they wait for the rainfall enough so that they can head back upstream, they can spawn, and then they'll die. And you can find them on the side of the shore. It's also a journey that is fraught with all kinds of dangers. Uh, because there are all kinds of uh, animals that wait for the buffet to begin. And so at the certain times of the years, these bears will come out and they'll know, they just know, this is when the salmon are spawning. And if the bears don't get them, then, you know, there's other dangers in the stream that, uh, that the salmon could run into. Salmon intrigue me because of their natural instinct to swim against the current as they aim for a specific destination in order to complete their mission. They're aiming for a specific destination because they're on a mission. It reminds me a little bit about how God asks his followers to live in this world. So let me ask you this question. Have you ever felt like a salmon? (laughs) Uh, Let me phrase that a little differently. Have you ever felt like you constantly are swimming against the stream of culture? Have you ever felt like that kind of living causes constant tension for you. Uh, the salmon, they, they find their way upstream, whether it's 50 miles or 200 miles, back to the place where they were birthed in order to complete their mission. And I want to tell you that God regularly calls us to make decisions that require us to go against the current of culture. And sometimes that takes an enormous amount of effort. And when we do, we often feel exhausted and fatigued, just drained in the process. But the effort to obey God and go against culture is tiring enough, but then you have to explain it to your friends. And then you have to explain it to your family. Here's why we are doing this. And that creates tension as well. Living righteously is one thing, but then you have to explain it to the people that you live with, the people that are all going with the current. Why are you going against the current? We're all going this way. If you would go this way with us, it would be so much easier. And you say, no, 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 I can do it. I can do it. The little engine that could. And you continue to stream upstream. When I explain my reasons to my friends, I don't know about you, but so many times it creates tension. Why would I possibly have a problem with dumping my husband when he's not worth any more of my effort? They look at me, and uh, maybe, you, maybe your friends have said the same thing. Dump the loser. He's not worth it. And you say, no, I will not do it because I'm swimming against the current, 
not with it. Why would you ridiculously be so honest with your wife about everything? Because I'm swimming against the current of culture. I'm not swimming with it. Why aren't you going to our party again? When I explain the reasons to my, my co-workers, there's tension. Why can't you join us in our after-hours debriefing session about all the losers we work with? Because I'm swimming against the culture, not with it. Why wouldn't you sleep with that Greek god again? He's available. He likes you. It's a one-time thing. Why aren't you doing that? Because you're swimming against culture, not with it. And then when you explain it to your kids, I don't know about you, but that creates tension in my household. The tension is like, why can't we play sports on Sunday? They've never actually given me this one, but I know this one exists for, for many of us. Why can't we play sports on Sunday? Because Sunday is when we worship the Lord. So we don't do that on Sunday. Why can't I wear this outfit again? <laughs> because you're my child, and I say no. <laughs> no. Watch the fireworks start when you start telling them. The reason is because their body belongs to the Lord. I don't know about you, but the culture, the, the constant exertion to live for the Lord when it goes against culture can leave me sometimes pretty exhausted. Like I'm continually swimming upstream. Like a salmon must feel. But in our obedience, there is a promised power that will help us succeed. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. There is power available in our pattern of living for the Lord. In fact, God's promise for those who go countercultural to culture, counter countercurrent to culture, is that they will receive power for success in all areas of life. So Peter anticipates this big question. And the big question that he anticipates is probably the big question that you feel right now, which is how? How is this possible? And so let's dive into the text. How do I live in a good God-created institution that humans have messed up, and how do I do it in a godly way? Remember the big picture flow. We are in the middle of a sentence, of a run-on sentence that Peter has given to these folks, these exiles, telling them how to live in culture. When everybody demands they swim with the current, he says, no, you got to swim against the current. And the way you do that is, and the big key word here is be subject. In verse 13, he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Verse 15, this is the will of God. What's the will of God? To subject yourself to, to these institutions. And verse 21, for this subjection, to this subjection, we talked about this last week, you have been called. Now, if you're jumping into this cold and you didn't hear last week's message, you gotta, you gotta get, kind of put this on hold here and say, I gotta go listen to last week's message. In fact, it was one of the roughest messages that I've had to do. I don't know about you, but when I left here, I felt like a salmon that just swam upstream. Because I felt like I was, I was speaking continually to a group of people, you and myself, that have a really hard time understanding in order to win, you have to be willing to lose. And so I asked Rebecca on the way home. Uh, she and I got to travel on the way uh, uh, home together. And I said, Rebecca, did you understand? Rebecca's my youngest. And I said, Rebecca, did you understand what I was saying this morning? What, what kind of came out to you? Because I was hoping, I was hoping that at least she would get what I was trying to say. And she put it this way. She said, Daddy, you said, be subject to all authority as long as it doesn't change your identity. And I thought, 
I don't actually think I said that last week. That's better than what I said last week. So I told her I was going to remind you all of, of last week's message this way. Whatever subjection means for you, whatever it means for you in your particular situation, this is the means whereby God has called us to live. I don't live in your world and you don't live in mine. But I know in your world, as in mine, in order for me to win, I have to be willing to yield. I have to be willing to subject myself primarily to God and then to others. And the reason I do that is because that is what I'm called to do. The experience of submission looks a lot different from culture to culture, but the heart of submission never changes. And today Peter launches into a different kind of principle illustration of what this kind of submission, this culture of subjection can look like, and he uses the real-time example of marriage. So, if you thought last week was hard, buckle in. Because Peter is saying to himself, well, God is saying through Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, let's give these folks a real-time illustration. What does it mean to be subject in the institution of marriage? And how does that mean you swim against what culture tells you to do? First of all, before we dive in, I want to tell you a couple of things. Number one, there's a power available for you in your marriage. There is power available for you in your marriage. But you may very well have to go against the flow of what others are telling you to do. In fact, it's likely that you will. Ladies, do you want to win your husbands or push them over, push them further away and into rebellion? Then this message is for you. Husbands, do you want to win your wives and their respect and have a responsive wife? Then this message is for you. So we're going to talk about some hard things this morning. Don't blame me. Blame Peter when you see him, all right? But our church never shies away from the hard stuff. If we're not talking about life where the rubber meets the road, then we're talking about stuff that doesn't matter. So let's talk about life where it meets the road in our marriage. Peter clearly indicates to us that he's still talking about the same issue of subjection by the way he uses this incredible word, likewise. Now, do you know what the word likewise means? It's like if you spend 10 minutes explaining something, and then you don't want to explain it again, but you want to build on it. You want to add to it. You've explained it, and you say, likewise, this. Peter is about to take the idea of subjection that he has just explained to us and apply it likewise to wives and likewise to husbands. Verse 1 and verse 7. So let's start in verse 1. Likewise, he begins... Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When you see your respectful, or when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, let's talk about where the rubber meets the road. If you're married, who has the power, the most power, to make your life? most miserable? This is not a trick question. 
Your spouse, right? So the wives say, my husband, he starts at 6 a.m. and it doesn't stop till midnight. Or wives, you, or husbands, you may say, yeah, my wife, she makes my life miserable all the time. Maybe. Or maybe you're here and you're going, no, I love it. I, I don't get miserable at all. So I would say, who has the power to bring you the most joy in life? Yeah, your spouse. They are put closest to you in life. They are knit to your heart. Spouses are meant to be where two become one. They are the closest thing to adding a piece of your body to your own body. Your spouse is a part of you. And so, of course, they have the most power to make your life miserable or to make your most life influence your feelings the most or to make your life a, mis- a living hell. They have the most power to do that. So I think Peter is not trying to overly exert the authority of the husband here. I think he's making a point with these, with these words. I think he's trying to say, wives, here's how you win your husband. Here, is, here might be something that I'm going to tell you that culture will tell you is not true. But I'm going to tell you something where it goes against culture and it may cause you to exert an enormous amount of energy. So be a salmon. He doesn't say that, I do. Be a salmon and be willing to swim upstream. And in order to do that, submit yourself to what God's going to say. That's hard. Because in our culture today, we have built up ourselves to the point where we know what we believe. And we are not even willing to be friends with people who believe something different. And so church, I would, I would invite you to welcome God's instruction here. And if you don't want to hear it from me, fine. Listen to what Peter says in these verses. Because I think Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is helping wives to understand how to unleash the power of God in their marriage. And it's not about screaming until you get them to submit to you. In fact, that is the worst thing that you could do. It's about swimming against your natural instinct to demand your own way. Now this is insidious because culture will try and get you to make sense of your personal desires to rise up against your husband, demand your own way, draw a line, say these are deal breakers, but God's instructions are clear. Submission is power. So my question is, how would you like to win your husband? How would you like to unleash the power of God in your husband? God says that we are all called to be subject in our relationships, even wives, to their husbands. Now, you probably already discovered this if you've been married for more than a day. You'll never win your husband with a rebellious heart, right? You know that, right? That's not like breakthrough stuff. But you may win him through your godly conduct. And apparently, You may do this, look at the verse, without uttering a single word. Now my house is full of women. And if you're listening online, you need to understand that means I have four daughters and a wife and a female dog, all right? So I have women around in my house all the time. And there's there's a lot of words at my house. Words are normal for us. But this is interesting because this verse is saying you can win your husband without a what, church? Without a word. By the conduct of of yourselves. 
Peter is saying that a woman's greatest strength may be exerted without uttering a single word. And perhaps the greatest strength for a woman is simple, consistent, living for Jesus Christ in front of her family. Now, you might be sitting here going, no way. No, no, no way. You haven't met my husband. (laughs) Or you only know his persona when he's in public. You don't know who he really is. My husband, if I don't clearly explain everything to him, he wouldn't be able to brush his own teeth and dress himself before he gets out out of the house in the morning. And you may be right. But where you're wrong is, the more instructions you give in your mind, the more you think he's going to listen. And let me just appeal to your experience. Has that worked so far? Probably not so well. Now, you can give instructions, and by, by, for goodness sakes, you should have communication going on in your marriage. But I'm going to stick in this verse and just encourage you ladies that you may be missing the greatest power you have. And that power is not the amount of words, or the level of words, or the depth of words. That greatest power might be the conduct of yourself in front of your husband. Now there's two challenges here. Personal instinct and personal experiences. This goes against every instinct in the female capacity. I understand the personal instinct that we have, men or female, is if, if, if something's not getting done like I think it needs to be done, I need to say something. Say something. Make yourself known. The problem is, if we were to admit which one needs, needs to have more explanation from day to day, and if that's the husband, it doesn't matter how much explanation you give to him, he may never come over to your side. The best power you have is a continual godly conduct. Personal instinct is, is something that comes natural. That's the flow of life. You get hit in your face, what's the first thing you, you want to do back? You want to hit somebody back. That comes natural, right? That is the natural instinct. And God is saying, maybe we need to do something that's not coming natural. And the other thing is personal experiences. You may have had some pretty bad examples of marriage to follow. You may have grown up in your life and you may have seen people that had crummy marriages, and you think to yourself, I don't want a marriage like that. Maybe it was your own parents. And you're thinking to yourself, I'm not going to have a marriage like that. And now 20, 30, 40, whatever years later, you're thinking to yourself, I've turned into my mother. Or I've turned into my father. Whatever it is. I want to encourage you that just because there's a lot of bad experiences out there doesn't mean that you have to uh, uh, imitate them. I want to encourage you that God has power available for you to break whatever cycle you think you're in. The danger is this. The sin of our culture is that we throw out God's institutions because we've seen too many bad examples. So what do people say today? I'm never getting married because all I've seen is bad examples. So we have a tendency to throw out the institution because of all the bad examples that we've seen. And I want to tell you, church, Marriage is a God-given institution meant to bring joy onto the planet. Meant to bring joy to our lives. That's the truth of the matter of it. God established marriage, not human beings. Read the first two books of Genesis. But you cannot see the power of God unless you exhibit His pattern for living. So Peter goes on to say in verse 3, Don't let your adorning, still talking to ladies here, And by the way, this applies not just to wives, but now this is going to apply to every female 
that reads this. Don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the, what does it say, church? Be the what? The hidden person of the heart with the, I love this word, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight, very what, church? Precious. Now, does that go against your natural instinct or what? It does, right? This seems so abnormal. This, these two verses seem like that doesn't seem normal at all. I don't understand it because it directly speaks against our culture. Culture tells us, women, you can win a man with your body. That's your greatest asset. So make your body look nice. Spruce it up. Smell it up. Make it look beautiful. And you can win a man. And I want to tell you, you might win a man for a night. You might win him for a couple of years. But you won't win him. Because if he buys you for your looks, you're going to get exchanged for a younger model. If the guy that is into you is into you because of how you look, your looks do not meet the criteria of imperishable. But there's something that does. And that is the inner beauty of a woman's heart. There is nothing more beautiful than that. Christy Brinkley is 63 in this picture. She is beautiful. She sells all kinds of uh, hair products and makeup products. Uh, she's obviously applied them well. She's aging very well. And so we would look at that and we would say, that's what I want to look like when I'm 63. Well, not me, but maybe you if you're a girl, right? That's what I want to look like when I'm 63. So I got to apply all the oil. I got to do what I need to do so that I can keep it for as long as I can keep it. Did you know that Christy Brinkley has been divorced four times? Four times. I want to tell you that this is probably one of the least happiest persons on the planet who's obviously looking for love. She's looked for it for a long time. She's rolled the dice four times, and she's failed four times. I don't know what she's like as a person. I don't know her at all. But I do know this. There's a lot of attention to the externals. And I would advise her, if I ever had the chance to meet her, let's put some attention to the internal. Perishable things are the things that men will lose their interest in over time. But if you spend your currency, ladies, on the inner beauty of your heart, you will, you will succeed in finding a man that will, that will be with you for a lifetime. And what is that? A gentle and quiet spirit. <laughs> I know, it's rough, isn't it? Now, do you feel like a salmon going upstream? Your currency is a gentle and quiet spirit. It doesn't mean that you should sit meekly in the corner, quiet all the time, uh, I have some strong women in my life, not just in my family, but outside of my family, and I love strong women. I think they have wonderful uh, assets that, that uh, bless others, and they can bless a church, and they can, um, they can bless their families. But, but, just because you have a strong personality doesn't mean you don't have a gentle and quiet spirit. A gentle and quiet spirit is one that is, remember our key word, Submissive. This is the theme of Scripture. And if you're thinking to yourself, Craig, that can't possibly be right. I give you Jesus Christ. And I tell you that He submitted Himself 
to death, even death on a cross. I tell you that he submitted himself to wash the feet of the man who would betray him. I tell you that Jesus Christ was the greatest example of a gentle and quiet spirit, and yet he was a man that rocked the planet. So just because you have a gentle and meek spirit, in fact, Jesus called himself meek and lowly in heart, and I would say that is the example for men and for women, primarily if you're thinking externals is all. Please switch your, do a U-turn, swim upstream, and realize the beauty that men really appreciate is in the inside. It goes on to say in verse 5, It's like he's thinking, okay, I need to give you an example. So he says, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, the beauty of the inner heart, by submitting to their own husbands. Okay, it's going to be a rough ride here. Okay, you ready? Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to say that word. I'm not going to say that. So 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 wives, if you go home, you should now start calling your husbands... <laughs> no, 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 no. Erase that from the uh, recording, please. Yeah. That is not what this is saying. Peter is using an example of an Old Testament woman that was abused by her husband. And she's saying, even though Sarah was abused by Abraham because he was a complete moron until he grew in his life closer to the Lord, he treated her with extreme disrespect. And even she, it's like, the light bulb comes on and Peter goes, I know of an example that everybody can, can understand. Let's talk about Sarah. This verse actually comes from Genesis 18, verse 11. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way, women had ceased, uh, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. You know what that means? She's done having children. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, am I, I am, after I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I still have pleasure? In other words, she's given the promise that she would have a child when she is 80 years old. This is where she laughed. This is where she disbelieved God. This is where she couldn't possibly think to herself that God would do something so miraculous as to give her a child when she's 80 and Abraham is 90. And yet Abraham said, Sarah, this is what God said, and we're going to believe it. And Sarah believed God because she believed her husband. She submitted herself to believe the way that God was leading her husband. Now, Abraham did not deserve to be believed. Abraham had dropped the ball a lot. He had taken her away from everything. She was, in some commentators believe, Sarah was a princess in Mesopotamia before Abraham took her away. Abraham takes her away, and she's a looker at 80 years old. I know, I know, I know. I hear what you're saying already, but she is. Because everywhere she goes, whether it's Egypt or some other place, the kings of the land that they walk through as they're walking toward the, the promised land, these kings see Abraham coming with his wife. And one of the things the kings could do back then is they, any strangers that come through the district, if they see a woman that they're interested in, they can take her. And if you fight them, they'll kill you especially if you're their husband, your dead mate. So Abraham comes up with a brilliant plan that he uses twice. He says, Sarah, we're going to go through a dangerous spot. King's been known to take women. 
If he finds out that I'm married to you, he's going to kill me. So let him take you and we'll just say, I'm your brother. Women, ladies, how would you like to have a husband like that? So they did. So he said, listen, uh, listen, she's my sister. Sarah said, okay, fine. Abraham, he's my brother. The king takes Sarah, puts her twice, puts her in his uh, entourage of ladies. And before he can be with her, God intervenes in some miraculous way and basically says, you touch her, I'm going to kill you. And the king goes, whoa, 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 I didn't know anything about this. King goes to Abraham. King, king's all mad at Abraham. Abraham goes, okay, yeah, I shouldn't have said that. I lied. I did it to save my own skin. Okay, then take Sarah, get out of my district, leave. And, and Abraham always ends up with a bag of gold and his wife back as they go to the next place. This is a man you would not feel comfortable with for your safety. And in this occasion, God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, you're going to have a son. Abraham comes to Sarah and says, Sarah... God said, we're going to have a son. Sarah's 80. Sarah knows she's been betrayed, misused. She's been unsafe because of her husband, but he is her husband from God. He believes God, and she will as well. She laughs. (laughs) She laughs when she finds out this whole thing because it's so ridiculous. And so she names her son laughter, which is what Isaac means in Hebrew. She had every reason not to follow Abraham's leadership. But you know what? She did with a gentle and quiet spirit. And then Peter goes on to say, and you are her what church? You are her, you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Sarah was not scared away from her faith based on how her husband behaved. Why? Because she had a faith in God that didn't depend on him. It depended on her gentle and quiet spirit. She was not fearful of what might happen. And she never stopped growing in her own faith. And, and just so you know, some commentators will say she named Isaac laughter because of her disbelief in the whole thing. And I think she named her son laughter because she realized God can do anything. And God can bring her joy even when she's 80, give her a child that she's always wanted. And every time she looks at Yitzhak, Isaac, she laughed. Can you imagine going to the door? You remember when, when we used to go out as kids and we used to play around until it got like, like in, into twilight? And then your parents would come to the door. It's like five o'clock at night and all the moms would come to the door and they would always say, Craig, and they'd scream like that. Do you remember that? Did that happen down here in the States? All the moms would come to the door and they Sarah, you know, they, they'd call them home. Can you imagine going to your door and saying, laughter? Isn't that awesome? Isaac was a reminder to Sarah that God is all she needed. God was her strength. And in Psalm 31, one of the characteristics of a godly woman is that she laughs at the years to come. Psalm 31 and verse 5, strength and dignity are her clothing. This is a godly woman, and she laughs at the time to come. Isn't that great? The beauty of a female is in her gentle and quiet inner spirit. I know it goes against culture, and you're probably thinking to yourself, I am never coming back here again. That's fine. That's fine. Just keep reading, will you? In fact, let's do that now. Would you like to hear how Peter talks to the husbands now? All the women said, 
Yes, please. Verse 7. He starts out with a big word. What's the big word at the beginning? Likewise. Likewise. So women, if you think you've had a long conversation, by the way, the women get like four verses, and the men just get one. I'm not sure why that is, but you can fill in the blanks. Um, Men probably can't take more than one verse. All right, so here it is. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. If there's one verse that I would stamp on the forehead of every man, this would be it. Because basically anything a husband comes and talks to me about can easily be applied with this verse. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Women may be driven to win men with their outward beauty, but men are driven to win women with their strength. Their strength. Men can win wives, they think, culture says, with their strength. Now, I can easily, easily prove this to you if I were to tell you that there are females in my life that love the Avenger movies, but not the plot, they love the guys that are in the Avenger movies. Okay? Let's watch an Avenger movie. Oh, come on, all over again, yeah. And every time Thor gets up there, I think to myself, I got work to do, right? <laughs> and you're probably thinking to yourself, yes, you do. Men think, it's it's ingrained in us that we will win our women with our strength. Unfortunately, that has to do with more than physical strength. We often think we can win them the stronger we are emotionally, the stronger we are physically, the stronger we are, the more persuasive we are, the more we think that we can win our women. But men, I want to tell you something. God says, swim against that. Turn yourself to a 180 because you win your women with not a strength, but a tenderness. Men win wives with their tenderness. You can win a woman who struggles with daddy issues with your strength, but you'll never win a godly woman until you're willing to have a tender heart. And you'll never have a happy marriage. You'll win a woman that needs strength because she's been damaged in the past in some terrible way. And she's looking for somebody to fill in the gaps. But men, God says, be tender. Be understanding. Men win with tenderness. Women are designed to to spiritually thrive when they are loved. Women win with a gentle and quiet spirit. So here's a question. If you're married, when it feels like you're swimming upstream, the question you have to ask yourself is, do you want to win or do you want to win them? Because you may do a U-turn in the, in the, in the, in the uh, stream and you may start thinking to yourself, okay, I'm willing to do things God's way. The question I would just put in front of you, do you want to win or do you want to win them? Because you may win an argument, but you may not win their heart. Man, this really applies to us. You may win the argument. You may craft your words better. You may establish your strength better. You may be smarter. I don't know. But however you establish your strength in that relationship, you may win the argument, but you won't win them. Peter is saying, if you want to win them, you've got to have a tender heart. In these days, if a man was married to a woman, the woman was seen as his property, as an extension of what he owned. 
Wives owned stuff themselves. They were given a dowry for the marriage. And anything they brought into that marriage, I I have four daughters, so thank God we don't do this anymore. But anything they bring into the marriage also belonged to him. So if you own something, your husband owns it now. And if you think that you are your own person, that may be true to a point, but your husband sees you as property. By the way, children were also seen as property. Well, we should get back then. So, (laughs) I'm just kidding. Here's what I would say. What master cares to understand his own property? None. If you own something, why would you take the time to get to know it? Why would you take the time to get to understand it? God's pattern for living is different. God says, husbands, your life is about understanding your spouse. Your life is all about understanding your wife. Look closely at the words that he uses. I'm not not making this up. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding ways. This is just not understanding so that I can endure their complexity. This is understanding like I really want to get to know how your mind functions. It's intriguing to me. I want to know what you fear. I want to know what you love. I I want to know what your needs are. So man, I would say, do you love your wife? Fine. Do you know your wife? Do you know what her loves are? Do you know what her needs are? Do you ask your wife questions at the end of the day? Do you believe your wife requires research? Because if you're married to a woman, she requires research all the time. That's what that means. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Don't give up. Patterns of dating need to be continued all through your life. And it's not just the understanding, but look, look, look what it says after that. Live with your wives in an understanding way. What is the next two words? Showing honor. This is the tamao idea. This is the idea that let me do what I can to get so low that I can push you up. I want to show you honor. Like, let's go out to eat. Uh, I want to go to Panera Bread. Uh, I want to go to, uh, I don't know, give me something. Texas Roadhouse, yeah. Uh, okay, let's do what you want to do. That's the showing honor to. And they may, you may end up going somewhere else. That's not the point of the illustration. The point of the illustration is this. Live with your wife in a way that, like understanding her, and in the process, show her honor. If you're not showing her honor, she'll know it. Show her honor. And then listen to this. Especially in the ears of the first century church. Showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Let me ask you again, church, now that you know some stuff about first century living, what did the woman own in a marriage? Nothing. According to Peter, what do the women own in a marriage? Everything their husbands owned. They are heirs with you in the grace of life. If you can read the Bible and show me any verse in Scripture where it talks down to the woman, I will pay you $500. Because that is a lie of our culture in Scripture. Women are lifted up on a regular basis. They're given positions of authority, ownership. They are powerful women. But they are not your property. They are equal in value to you. And an understood woman is a cherished woman. So the question I have for you is, finally, according to this verse, men, what is affected when you don't seek to understand your wife, you don't show her honor, and you don't value her? What is affected? Your prayers. That should scare the pants 
of any man. Because if you're not living with your wife like you should, God's not going to listen to one thing you say. Powerful verse, right? When you and your wife are fighting, your prayer life goes away. That alone should be enough to jolt you men, us men, into submission as a pattern for loving our wives. So, so all kinds of questions we don't have time to answer because we live in a world that has really complicated marriage. Like, does submission always look the same? The experience of submission may look different from culture to culture, but the heart of submission is always the same. Your heart of submission, you know if you have it, and you know if you don't have it. Number two, can a wife be a spiritual leader of the household? Well, this text doesn't speak about this issue, but sometimes, yes, absolutely. The woman can be a spiritual leader in the household. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7 says that a woman has the power to change her family based on her spiritual condition with God. That's powerful. Number three, so am I just a doormat? Never. If that's what you got out of this message, please rewind and listen again. Nobody here is a doormat. Absolutely not. Does this mean that I do whatever he says? No, again, you haven't been listening. It doesn't mean you do whatever he says. There's a give and take in the relationship. Now, sometimes you may have a bonehead of a husband. I'm not saying they don't exist. But what I am saying is that doesn't change your willingness to do a Yui and swim upstream, believing what God says is right and not going with the culture any longer. Next one, what if submission makes my heart life harder at first? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's just like, uh, okay, you, you already know the answer to that, right? It will, it will, especially if you haven't done this before, your life is going to get so hard, it's ridiculous. But here's what I promise you, if you make it a pattern for living, there is power available to you to change the course of your relationship. Make it a pattern. Next one, does this mean she should do whatever I say? All right, you're obviously not listening, okay? That's, that was not covered. It's, it's a simple no. Finally, should Christians even use this word of submission outside of the church? Probably not. Because submission is a four-letter word outside of the church. But in the church, it's a means to godliness. And so I, I would just explain it to you this way. We're able to talk about it in the context of following Jesus Christ. And if somebody doesn't know how to submit to Jesus Christ, they're never going to know how to submit to other people. There's always going to be tension. So remember our question. How do I live in a good God-created institution like marriage that men has messed up, humans have messed up in a godly way? The power's in the pattern. Power's in the pattern. Everybody say that one, one, one with me. It's so good. The power is in the pattern. One more time. The power is in the pattern. The pattern is structure. That's God's structure. Not the current of culture going off, oftentimes against the current and living with the tension. Life happens when we live in the structure that God has established for us from the beginning. That means husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And by the way, we can throw that verse up there. This is in Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church in such a way that his goal was to present the church holy and spotless to God the Father. Husbands, let me just cap this off for you. Put a little whipped cream on top and a cherry, and here it is for you. Men, your job is to make your wife with every piece of information, power, 
effort, energy that you have is to give your wife every reason, willing heart, every purpose, everything in life is meant to make her holy. Your job is to present your wife to God as a holy vessel, just like Jesus presents the church to the Father. That's how we are to look at our marriage. I've often heard, like, if you come across an accident, one of the first things people say is, who's responsible for this? I don't want to be responsible. Who's re- it's the first question. Who's responsible for this mess? Men, when you get to heaven, that question doesn't go to your wife. That question goes to you. And your hand goes up. All right. So live in the pattern. Ladies, the power of living for you, the pattern of living for you is to develop a gentle and quiet spirit meant by God to be your greatest strength. Forget the makeup and all of that. I mean, you can still use that if you want to. But your greatest asset is not your body. Your greatest asset is what's in here. Number, uh, Number two, the power is in the pattern. Does that sound familiar? Let's say it again. The power is in the pattern. In the pattern means repetitive. You might have tried this stuff before. Give it another go. This isn't a one-off. This isn't like, I have tried that in December 21st, uh, 2003, and it didn't work for me, and so I didn't give it another shot. Listen, if it didn't work for you the first time, it might be because you gave it one try, maybe two tries, maybe a year's worth. The power is in the pattern. So you've got to make this a regular thing in life. You need to live your life like you believe it. Women and men. Like you can actually win over these areas of life if you live it out regularly. And the final one, the final so what is, guess what? Say it with me. The power is in the pattern. So I leave you with this final thought. God will give you the power to win. If you're willing to swim upstream, I have seen this so many times. I've begged people, just give it to the Lord and let Him show you His power. And they said, no, I've tried it before. It doesn't work. I've done this before. It just, uh, there's no fruit. No, just keep trying. Keep giving it. Keep surrendering. That's what God asks us to do. God will give you the power, the muscle, to swim in the current, against the current, if you're willing to do it God's way. Will you submit this to God? God says you'll never win people with a hostile heart. It may come natural, but the success rate is very low. So why not try it God's way? Husbands, you have the best chance to win your heart of your wife with an understanding heart yourself. Wives, you have the best chance to win the heart of your husband with a submissive heart. After all, how did God win your heart? There's a parable. I debated whether I was going to do this. It's such a stupid thing, but you might like it. I told it, I told it we did the, the sermon prep, and I told it to the guys, and I said, is this stupid? And they said, no, they, they were blown away by it. So based on how it went with them, I give you a parable. The sun and the wind had an argument one day. They were looking down, and they saw a man sitting on a bench with a parka on. So it's like, what? Two weeks ago here in Chicago, right? So he got his park on. The wind looks at the sun and says, I'll bet you $500 I can get that guy to take his parka off. And the sun said, you're on. 
So the wind decided he's going to blow and blow, and he blew and he blew, and he threw all the icicles down that he could throw at him, threw snow down at him, and he just blew. The trees are flying off, flapping in the wind. Leaves are flying all over the place. Garbage cans rolling down the road. The wind is doing everything it can to get that jacket off the guy. And the guy, instead of taking off his jacket, pulls the jacket tighter and tighter. And the harder the wind blew, the tighter he pulled his jacket. Finally, the wind was tired, and he looked at the sun. He said, I can't do it. Your shot. You take a go. And then the clouds parted, and the sun came out, and it warmed the earth up so that the, you know, that smoke starts coming off the ground. And the man feels the warmth of the sun, and he takes his parka off. So I'm here to tell you, it goes against every natural instinct that we have in our bodies. But if you do things God's way, with a gentle and quiet spirit, with an understanding heart, gentlemen, with a gentle and quiet spirit, wives, you have the most opportunity to see the power of God unleashed in your relationship. So if you tried it long enough your way, why not try God's way? God's power is accessible in His pattern for living. You might feel like a salmon swimming upstream when you explain it to the people around you. Why would you stay with that guy? Why would you stay with that woman? But in our obedience, there is a promised power to help us succeed. There's power available in the pattern of living for the Lord. We're going right into communion, and then we're going to do a song called Through the Fire, another in the fire. And the, the reason that we're doing this song, I, I'm glad they switched this for me. I, I love the words to the song because it reminds me that if I'm willing to do things God's way, there's power available to me that I would not know any other way. So if this applies to you, my invitation to you is, why not do a Yui? Turn around. You've been going with culture and what culture says long enough. Why not try it God's way? There's power in the pattern of living and doing it God's way. Lord, I want to just thank you for our opportunity that we had to look into your word and as we go into communion, settle our hearts for how you would speak to us and maybe put the icing on the cake as we again remember how we submit to one another like you submitted for our salvation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.